0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to episode eight of Three Daisy Things. How are you two?
1: We're good, you know, chugging along.
0: Did you just copy that from Veda's previous (laughs) how are you answer?
1: (laughs) Did she say chugging along? That's exactly what I said in the bath episode. (laughs) That's the best way to describe a pandemic experience is chugging along. There is nothing else happening. Surviving. <laughs> Surviving.
0: Geetu had me do, uh, what is that number thing that you had me do? Enneagrams. Yeah, Gito had me take an enneagram test. Did you also take it, Veda?
2: Yes, in fact, I did. And I'm, I'm usually very dubious of these personality tests, but it saw through me.
0: Can you explain what an enneagram test is for us? For those who, for the, for listeners who actually have a job (laughs) and have other things to do in their life.
1: Okay. I mean, I'm by no means an expert, but it's like a personality test that puts you in like one of eight categories. One of nine. One of nine categories. Okay. So clearly I have no idea what I'm talking about. One of nine categories and each category kind of has like their strengths and weaknesses. So I'm a three, which is like a people pleasing perfectionist basically.
2: I'm a four, which is a moody, creative. What am I again?
1: You're an eight. What is that supposed to mean? It's like a like a determined kind of strict rule following person who can get very angry at times.
2: What's the What's the type called?
1: I forget.
0: What is your type called?
2: Mine is called the individualist, and it's like it's like advice is like get over yourself, <laughs> like.
1: <laughs> Sarbs is called the Challenger, which fits. <laughs> it's like you need to feel less.
2: <laughs> Everyone Wait, else my... needs
1: to feel more, and you need to feel less. Mine is Type Three, the Achiever, and it's basically like your biggest fear is being worthless. Yeah, that is my biggest. And that's fear. like everyone's fear. <laughs> I mean, apparently it eats at me, this fear of being worthless.
0: So yeah, that's what we've been doing.
1: Guys, can I tell you what my dad has been doing, though? This is so super cute. My dad is harassing all his friends to listen to this podcast. Like he sends threatening text messages. So like if you're here because Ajikalu Kalu has sent you multiple text messages saying, what are you doing? Listen to my daughter's podcast. Welcome and thank you. That's really sweet because
2: I don't think I've been able to convince my own immediate family to listen to the
1: podcast. Yet. No, my dad like went on the spiel and he was like, I don't, it's not for everybody. You don't have to listen to it, but give it a try. Listen to two oh, episodes. he likes it, huh? So he loves it. He sends me, as he listens, I get lifetime feedback from it. <laughs> One time he had to accidentally put it on 1.5 speed and he was like, why are you guys speaking so quickly in this episode? Slow down.
0: <laughs> if you also would like to harass people on our on our behalf and ask them to rate and review and listen to the podcast, we wouldn't be very upset about it.
2: A gentle nudge is all we ask.
0: <laughs> do we do we have something interesting today, Veda? And am I going to feel depressed after hearing your your thing for today?
2: I don't think so. I think I think I have something nostalgic for us. So my fact for today is about the Hindustan Ambassador car, which was an iconic vehicle of post-independence India. It was the first car manufactured in independent India, um, and it was manufactured from 1958 till 2014 when they stopped production. Um, every Indian who's been in a car at that time would have ridden in an ambassador. What about you guys?
1: I have, for sure. Me too. I love them. They, um, Sarv, I think yesterday said that they look like a VW bug that's put on a little too much weight. And that's like such a good description of this car. Isn't it inspired by some British car?
0: Or like kind of like a model that was borrowed, inspired from a British model?
2: Yeah, it was modeled off uh, the British Morris Oxford series, uh, apparently the Oxford series three model, um, but there have been seven generations of the car. So it's interesting because it clearly, it feels like a very like quintessential, independent modern Indian car in some ways, because it's. It has the colonial history, but it was also manufactured in India. And so it's an Indian car. And that is very, it's very symbolic um, for Indians for that reason. And what's interesting is that it kind of bridges. One article I was reading um, was talking about how it like bridges the class divide because it's, it was the official car used by government officials. Um, So it's symbolic of like, Indian elite and power but it was also a a family car Um, and it could it was so large um, that it it was very roomy and it could fit like multiple generations uh, of like you know intergenerational families um, together And, and my mom actually talks about how you know in her summer holidays, how all of her cousins, her like, you know, 12 cousins and 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 used to get into this, their like family ambassador car to go to the movie theater.
1: Well, it's seat seven, which it's a sedan, guys. Like it's seats seven. That's a minivan level capacity. So like, Veda exactly right, right? Like it was a symbol, it was a status symbol, and it was a symbol of the elite. But it was also very much a family car. And I think it was Everyone's first car probably in our like grandparents or parents' generation.
0: I mean, I want to interject here and kind of mention that not everybody could afford cars. So for anybody who could afford cars, I believe the ambassador or the other one, uh, Premier Padmini, Fiat Premier Padmini would have been their car. Uh, I have sat in several ambassador's. It's huge. The car is huge. There's so much leg room even in the back seat and vertical room. I I believe when I was young, I don't think I could reach the roof of the car when I was uh, when I would stretch my hand up. So it was. It's really tall.
1: And it was never really significantly updated, right? Like I mean, I'm sure the engine and stuff was, but the look is very much the same from the 50s. It has kind of like an old world charm to it.
2: Yeah, highly recommend for those who don't know what it looks like, just hit the pause button, take a look at our Instagram feed and look at what an ambassador car looks like. It's, you know, it's very, um, in some ways also a very like funny image, right? Because it's like this very like big, sturdy car. Like, <laughs> I mean, they,
0: a lot of drivers used to joke that if you're in an ambassador, you're probably safe. And the other, if in an ac- and if you're in an accident in an ambassador, it's the other guy who <laughs> has to be worried because your car wouldn't Like, it wouldn't budge. Like, the other guy would be, like, completely crushed or whatever.
1: But, okay, so I'm not, I've never driven an ambassador, but supposedly it's not, like, there's a great article um, in the BBC that talks about, like, how the handbrake rarely worked properly. So you spawned a generation of drivers that could easily do hills, deftly, like, balancing the accelerator and the brake, and, like, you know, like, the fact that it had, like, the smoothness of an earthquake, like... It's not like a BMW, like level ride or anything.
0: It's not the greatest. I've, I don't think I've driven an ambassador or I may have once maybe, but it's not a smooth ride at all. Uh, it's just very spacious. It's very, um, it's also very loud. The same article, it's by Horma Saurabhji who's the editor of Autocar India. So the article is really funny. He talks about how the joke is that the only thing, the only thing that doesn't make noise in an ambassador is the horn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the smoothness of an earthquake is such a good way to describe that ride
2: not not great for its mileage uh not known for its mileage uh, but you know i in, interestingly i i did read that because of you know its universality at the time even in the 70s and the 80s they did use it in car rallies <laughs>
1: <laughs> someone was racing with them i mean like it's a quirky car but for that same reason though i think their indians always have um like a real love of it like a former editor of the hindu siddharth uh, vardarajan has three he collects them and he was like very and he talks about how it's like um uh, the symbol of like Indian independence and of, like, great optimism and hope and, like, this vision of where that country was headed when it came back. And he's like, I love it. It's not a great car, but I love it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's... it referred to as it was referred to as the king of the Indian roads um and <laughs> when there's only one
1: car it has to be king. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, it was a diesel car and it was basically you know it's interesting because as you're saying it was the you know basically one of the only cars available for decades um, that it would it it is connected to how we envision a lot of different... Um, industries and and like, you know, from the government to the family to even the taxis. I think one, one of the ways it lives on is actually in the like, some of mm-hmm. the, you know, the quintessential golly billy black and yellow taxis.
1: And actually Top Gear, which is a British TV show about cars, uh, voted it the best car for a taxi in I think 2012. I'll have to get back to you on the date, but it was voted on that show because it's so big. It's such a good car to like. There's so much space for people and luggage. I
0: love that you gave an introduction for what Top Gear is. That's like saying BBC, a Does
2: British it... <laughs> Broadcasting Company.
1: Does everyone know what Top Gear is? I
2: don't know. Well, in in 2003. Uh, the Indian Prime Minister Vajpayee opted not to use the ambassador for his official business. Shocker! Um, <laughs> and he and he instead went for a Beamer, and it was like a big deal, and it was like a you know a sign that you know, the country was moving away from the ambassador to different kinds. that they had a lot more car options than luxury cars, what symbolized power was was different. Um, so and eventually. You know, um, production went down and and the sales were going down, so it did it did halt in twenty fourteen.
1: Yeah, Hindustan Motors did try though. They tried to um, export it to other countries, including like Pakistan, Bangladesh. They tried even England, and it just like did not. Pick up. It had a very interesting history in Dubai where it was used as a delivery vehicle because it was literally the cheapest car that you could buy for a delivery vehicle. The only thing cheaper than that was a moped, but you couldn't deliver like big things on that. So they were like, this car is great. Like they made it, like things were being delivered in an ambassador for years in Dubai because it's just so cheap. I don't think they did much uh, to Make it as smooth a ride as potentially the Beamer or Range Rover, like these actually luxury cars. So I think once those cars came into the market, Indians probably were like, including Prime Minister Rajivai, was like, no, thank you. They did dub it the Ambi to appeal to (laughs) younger
2: people. So fans and apparently younger millennials
1: may call it the Ambi. I don't know. They don't. (laughs) I've
2: never heard
0: that.
1: (laughs) Also, I have to... Add later that it was sold to the Peugeot or whatever car company which also makes the pepper mill that I use yeah the French company yeah I don't know how to pronounce it
2: Peugeot I call it Peugeot so they've sold Hindustan Motors sold the ambassador brand to the PSA group in 2017 and people have been hoping that maybe there'll be like a new version that'll make a comeback I've seen that there there have been some new designs like an electric more like swanky version
1: but it hasn't necessarily come out yet the thing is that when you make it swanky it's no longer an ambassador and like that's not the ambassador is not a swanky car but damn do you feel powerful in india when you sit in an ambassador because you look like an official right i've only ridden it with my uncle who was like a government official so like you just feel like i am the king of the road (laughs) kudos to them right like they tried to to England and be like, maybe it'll catch on here. Your handbrake doesn't work. Also, you modeled it off a British car, <laughs> which has since like evolved, right? And gotten, you have stayed exactly the same. I also, I think briefly they flirted with this idea of like a stretch ambassador, which didn't really catch on. So it was like an ambassador limo type thing. I'll put an image, I saw an image, I'll put it on Instagram. Something that awkward looking should not be stretched. That does not improve it. So was it hard to drive it? Like, because it was so sturdy?
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of like, a. it's not very responsive. It's the same BBC article by Hormuz Hrabzi. He talks about how you needed such strong triceps to turn the car. And on the steering wheel because i mean this is before power steering became a thing right so i my first our first car was a maruti 800 and that did not have power steering so probably my triceps are stronger because like i'm just used to rotating the wheels so much because it won't turn like that otherwise
1: but also in that same article he says that the indicators for controls were like often mounted in really like weird positions and, like, the brakes were super soft. So, like, it, like you had to focus when driving an ambassador. It wasn't like you could throw it on cruise control or whatever. Another thing I
2: read was that, like, the silver lining of the fact that, like, this car was present everywhere was that if it broke down, anybody knew how to fix it. Like, any mechanic, <laughs> it wasn't like you had to be a specialist on this on a specific car. It was like, oh, yeah, I know how to fix this. <laughs>
0: And can I mention one thing that I have noticed, I used to, I kind of remember now, now that the article mentions it. So every ambassador car above the fuel uh, thing always had like a wet piece of handkerchief or like a wet piece of cloth or something. So there was like a wet piece of cloth near the exhaust uh, pump, right? And the reason for that is, uh, I just read this read in the same BBC article that the, the mechanical fuel pump was just under the exhaust. So because, of the, ex- because the exhaust got so hot, the fuel in the pump would evaporate and cause vapor lock and cause kind of the car to shut down, essentially. So because this was inspired by a British design, right? And it doesn't get as hot in... I mean, England is cold and rainy, but Indian summers are super hot. So ambassadors often broke down because of this. So this is where Indian Jugaad came in, where they would put like a wet piece of cloth on the... or below, I think, the the exhaust, so that that piece of cloth would cool that area and essentially stop the vapor lock from happening
2: is that why like you know in in the movies of the time in the hindi movies of the time like these cars are like you know breaking there's like a lot of comedy around these cars like stopping all the time they like work it into the storyline and then people are suddenly like you know, it just becomes a comedy of errors. And then they're also like, <laughs> they're also like getting out and pushing the car. And it's just like, I feel like they just, it was like a thing of the time that they just like worked around and it made itself in way into comedies too. It probably
1: was, but then tell us this, why did it take so long for other cars to like really take a foothold in the Indian market? If this car has like such a curiosity, why, why was it the king of the Indian road?
2: Yeah, it's super interesting because it's also symbolic and you know a remnant of um, you know the policies that India pursued post independence, um, socialist policies uh, with regard to a lot of these industries, and um, it's something that's called the license raj era. It's reflective of the license raj era, which basically meant that it was a time when in order to you know, produce anything or start a company or manufacture things, you needed like permits or licenses from every single uh, department. And there was just a lot of bureaucracy. And the only way to get it was if you were very influential. So it was extremely, one, really hard to, to, to get something off the ground, but it also led to a lot of production delays. And it led to the omnipresence of one kind of car, and it was only certain kind of families and industrialists that were already, you know, well-established. In this case, uh, the Birla families uh, started Hindustan Motors, which produced the ambassador car, that were able to break in. Um, and it's interesting, Sarab, um, you know, mentioned the Marathi 800. Um, the ambassador car's popularity started to dip in the mid to late nineties with the emergence of the Marthy, uh, car. Uh, it was a compact car and, and became like the, the new, like family friendly affordable car, which in, in my memory, I think for a lot of people of our generation, the Marthy car is also like, we have a lot of memories with associated with the Marthy 800, um, car as well. The Marthy is also an Indian car, right? Yeah, it's, a, yes. it's an Indian car, which they have a partnership with uh, Suzuki. So it's Maruti Suzuki.
0: And as you mentioned, Veda, the the Ambassador was inspired by the Morris Oxford series, right? Which itself was a derivative of, of another Morris series of cars. And the designer for those cars was Alec Isigonis, uh, who also designed the Mini, which later BMW acquired and and. Now they produce i think they've also sold a, they've also sold that company, but they produced a mini cooper they've retained the right to produce the mini cooper brands but it's it's interesting that like it was i found that link online of how the Morris Oxford and the ambassador and the mini Cooper are kind of related
1: it's the mini Cooper does kind of look like uh the ambassador's rich cousin or something right like <laughs> it's like the
0: sleek version it's like the ambassador's cousin on a paleo or a keto diet. <laughs>
2: initially they were manufacturing part of the car, uh, before 58 in the UK. Um, and then when they started officially launched this car, then it was being fully manufactured, um, in India, I believe, um, they had a plant in Gujarat. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It took, it took like 10
1: years to kind of perfect that, so what, So what's the fate of the ambassador right now? You know, d- d- it's not being produced. Are there any hopes to seeing it in the future?
2: There are some designs for it. Um, I, you know, it's interesting when I was researching for this. I feel like anytime there's a sign that it might come back, it gets a lot of news attention because I found like several articles that were like the ambassador could make a comeback ambassador brand makes the comeback. I means I think it means so much to people. Um, so as you said, though, um, completely doing a makeover on the ambassador kind of changes what it was, but because the brand means so much to people, it's possible that, um, you know, it will come back.
1: So say they do come back, and it has a better engine, and the knobs are in the right place, etc. Would you buy one? No. <laughs>
2: But, you know, there clearly there are some people that would, you know, these collectors and maybe people of an older generation for whom it means something.
0: And anyway, it's not a very fuel efficient car. And I'm not I don't think it ever was a fuel
1: efficient car. No, it was a big gas guzzler.
2: It was only in 2014 that the government allowed for other brands of cars to be purchased for staff vehicles. So it was like, well, now that production is being halted you can buy other brands.
1: (laughs) It is, it will always like symbolize that time in Indian history though, right? Like any um, story or movie or anything told about India between 1950 and 1980, the car on the road has to be an ambassador. That's just-
2: I mean, it's absolutely wild, like to imagine, right? Like that there's like this one quintessential car that for like decades was the go-to, like, I mean,
1: it's it's hard to imagine, I think, in the American context. So there are a couple of articles that talk about this exact phenomenon where they're like, no country has a car that symbolizes it more than, like, the ambassador does India, right? Like, and then... The author also goes into kind of what um, Sarab was saying, that it's also a symbol of this bureaucracy. It's a symbol of this license rage where people kind of, they kind of killed off any other competition because of the bureaucracy. But, you know, there was some conversation around like, oh, is the Ford Mustang the equivalent of that in America? But it's not because it wasn't that ubiquitous, right? It's kind of this like sexy freedom car, but it's not, it doesn't have that like, I don't know, not every American has ridden in a Ford Mustang, but every indian of a certain age certainly has
0: can i just read one more I, I this bbc article is just hilarious for the number of things that the ambassador had wrong or the number of <laughs> things that were going 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 on for it so apparently they had updated the axle, they had updated the car in the in the mid 90s the author mentions that he tested the ambassador for an auto magazine in the mid 90s, it was the fastest accelerating car in India and it used to outpace the modern, like Fiats and Maruti Suzuki's. But the maker had barely upgraded the brakes, <laughs> so it needed an airport runway length of the road to stop.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm sure our non Indian. Listeners are thinking to themselves, "Why was this car allowed to stay on the road for so long?" <laughs> License
2: Raj—that's why
1: we're talking about
2: it. <laughs> it's so funny that the quintessential Indian car went from being the master, of this big sturdy car, to like the teeny, like little boxy Maruti 800. <laughs> um, I feel like it—it it really, I think, also reflects a little bit of how the Indian how indian society and indian families were also changing like women i read that like you know women were driving more um they found it easier to drive the maruti the 800 um, it's a, it's a, it's like a very light car, the Maruti. but I have to say it didn't stop Indian families from jamming 10 people into that either. <laughs> I have, I have sat in like that. I have sat in like multiple laps as a kid and even a Maruti. and it, I implore our listeners to, you know, take a look at what a Marthy 800 looks like and put them, put the two cars side by side because it's quite a contrast.
1: Uh, that's so true. I mean, you can take, you know, you can make a car sleeker and smaller, but a Desi is going to be a Daisy.
0: <laughs> Doesn't Hindustan Motors not own the Ambassador brand anymore?
2: In uh, 2017, Hindustan Motors sold the Ambassador brand to the um French company PSA.
0: Which is Peugeot?
1: Which also by the way makes a bomb pepper mill that I have in my house. <laughs> it's yeah. a multifaceted company. <laughs>
0: I was just reading the label on it and I was like, Peugeot, is that the same company that makes cars?" So on the label, like a little label they have like a they have illustrations for all the products that the company makes, and there's a little car <laughs> illustration on the label.
1: <laughs> it's like Peppermill kitchen appliances car. <laughs> it's a very good Peppermill, I would highly recommend.
0: Peugeot, <laughs> if you want to advertise on this podcast, please you're welcome.
1: Welcome.
2: Ambassador brand. <laughs> people are going to be like are you are you endorsing
1: the ambassador I kind of am I think it's a cute car.
0: just FYI ambassador did not pay us a single rupee single dollar to him to do any of this content I wish it had but we did not <laughs> this is all free uh, free content
2: they, they sold it for 80 crore rupees so I guess it helps them not at all <laughs>
1: My fact is actually leaving India today. Uh, my fact is about Kuldeep Rai Singh, who was an Indian medical student at UCLA in the late 50s, who went on to be featured on Groucho Marx's show, You Bet Your Life. And it launched like a minor music career for him, which he started his music career on a student visa and not a work visa, which a lot of our listeners might know is illegal. So he was deported and kind of cut short this budding musical career. So yeah, he went on Garth Marx's show. And after the show, uh, he was flooded with something like 8,000 fan letters, five of which had marriage proposals. Kuldeep Singh fan clubs kind of popped up all over the country. So he was kind of an overnight sensation because he had such a beautiful, melodious voice.
0: And Groucho Marx's show is like a big starting point. It's like a launching platform.
1: Yeah. So I think at the time it was actually a quiz show and let it be known that Kuldeep Reissing did very poorly on the trivia portions of this show. But he often asks his contestants like, oh, do you have a special talent? And Kuldeep Reissing kind of went on the show, it seems like kind of with a plan to like, if he asked me this, I'm going to sing. He sang a song from Guys and Dolls. And he was so good that his like fellow contestant got all flustered and blushed and whatever. So he was, you know, he had an effect on, he was quite charming. He had an effect on the ladies. But also this interview is available on YouTube and we'll link to it. It was actually kind of racist. Um, His name is Kuldeep Singh and Groucho Mark asks him if it's like a cool dip. And as Kuldeep is answering, he says something like, cool dip. I know about that. I took one in my pool this morning. And then uh, he asks Kuldeep where he's from. Kuldeep says I'm from Kashmir, India. And Groucho Mark asks him if he like came on a camel. Like, I guess this was all hilarious in the 50s, quote unquote hilarious. But it's it's rough. And it kind of gives you a peek into what people of color, see in the United States at that time were kind of routinely exposed to. But Khalid really takes it like a star. He kind of banters back and he says something like, well, I had to take a boat because famously camels don't swim or something. So I was like, yeah, it's a good comeback for like a pretty stupid joke.
0: So did he go back to India after he left the U.S.?
1: Well... Before he left the U.S., he, like, signed with, um, like, a recording contract called RCA Victor, and he had a Profile in Life magazine. And then it was the Profile in Life magazine where they talked about how he was a medical student and how he was Indian that led immigration and natural services at the time to look into what this guy was doing and what his visa looked like. Um, And he was asked to leave, and he went to Mexico And he awaited his visitor's visa. It's not really clear what happens once he goes to Mexico, but a lot of the sources cite like the stigma of deportation and kind of just this gap in his uh, career kind of just led to all his offers fizzling out. And then he resurfaces again in like the 1960s in Spain, where he again has like a very minor um, career, but nothing, nothing major. He doesn't ever go back to India as far as I could find.
0: But that's cool, though, that he did this. And uh, I was reading a profile of him that South Asian American Digital Archive did. And they have like pretty detailed, a pretty detailed profile on his life. And they have uh, links to his YouTube channel. And uh, he has like a, I don't know if he has it or some of his fans have it. It seems like he there's a website. Uh, it's called... Uh, yeah, it's called kuldeep50 mexcom which is like this amazing looking 90s style website in fluorescent and red colors, which has links to all of his songs, a lot of which are in Spanish, some of which are in German. But he has a brilliant voice, right?
1: He is. He was called the Elvis Presley of the West, briefly.
0: Uh, Elvis Presley is from the West. I don't know. That's what he called him. I think you mean the East.
1: Okay, Elvis Presley of the East. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping that.
1: No, Please keep, keep that. that. keep that. Keep that. So you guys suck. Where was Elvis from? California? Tennessee. Tennessee. That's the East. He was from California.
0: Okay, West as in West of the country, not West of the world.
1: Yeah. Okay, whatever. West of the country. Keep that. I want my vindication. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. No, he had like an amazing voice and he... You know, he reportedly hit one of his appearances on NBC created a new record of fan mail that NBC received about an artist at the time. So, like, he definitely had people hot and bothered.
2: He got 8000 fan letters. Women were like that obsessed with him that they even included marriage proposals.
0: So if you look at his uh, video, uh, the Groucho Marx video that she was talking about, he's actually very charming. He plays to the he's pl- he plays to the crowd and he 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 actually does pretty well with the witty retorts and like comebacks with Groucho Marx. So he's he has a he definitely has a stage presence and like I think he did come prepared because this is such a big stage. But I also read like uh I was reading up on him on in some other articles and some older archives that We're not really sure where in India he's from and what his background, like growing up is, right?
1: Yeah, this actually became an issue during his time, like during his minor stardom, is that people, there was a lot of like aspersions cast. Some people said he grew up in Trinidad. Some people said he was not from India at all. Some people said he grew up in Puerto Rico. There's actually not a lot of clarity on where he was born or where he was raised.
2: Do we have, do we know about like where he you know finally ended up so
0: we don't honestly we don't know if well i mean given that he was a student in 1954 probably he must have passed away but the his last quote-unquote appearances like uh is on a youtube channel from i think his last posts were from 2008 or something and i believe he was last known to be in spain where he was living as like a musician and that the website that i mentioned it says that he had a he had a show on spanish radio called radio madrid or something i was not able to verify that uh and it's kind of hard to track down all of these archives especially when he, when he gets into spain because a lot of them are not like obviously not in english so the archives get even more difficult to track down
2: you know what's interesting um and sad is that you know you know clearly this he had this musical talent and um screen presence and stuff. And that even when he managed to return briefly to the US, um, he got the offers he mostly seemed to get were like, you know, very Orientalist roles. And so weren't really like doing justice to, you know, what he probably wanted to do um, and could have achieved.
0: Yeah, you're right, Veda. And like, I think that's been a theme probably till... Like the early 2000s, because everybody was being like typecast into that South Asian, whatever kind of uh, brown man from the Oriental mystic East kind of role.
1: And even, I mean, today, right? Like you still see a lot of like tech dudes and 711 owners, like that's cab drivers in New York, right? Like doctors, Calpan later went on to be on house as a doctor, right? Like we can't seem to break out of the stereotype. You're seeing it a little bit more now when people of South Asian descent are making their own films, right? Kumail Nanjiani can make a romantic comedy about his love story because he wrote it, he produced it, like, you know, partnered with Judd Apatow or whatever. But... um yeah, you see these tropes kind of exist for a long long time.
0: Yeah, I was also reading I was like okay, let me look at some of the other South Asian entertainers or somebody in the entertainment industry. I read about this guy called Sabu Dashtagir uh, who was born in uh, Mysore, like he's born in 1924. Uh he was one of he was quite a famous uh Indian actor in the US. Um, so he was cast as and he uh he was quote unquote discovered ...by a British film actor... uh, ...while he was tending to elephant stables... ...in Mysore... ...and he was cast as an elephant driver... ...and he actually went on to... ...play mostly like... ...exotic... ...quote-unquote exotic kind of roles... ...like the Oriental East... ...those kind of tropey kind of roles... ...some of his films include like... ...Thief of Baghdad... Uh, and I think he was also, he, I think he played Mowgli in uh, in some version of The Jungle Book in 1942. Of course he did. But he has kind of a crazy story. So he became a U.S. citizen in 1944 uh, and he joined the Air Force, uh, the U.S. Air Force, and he completed 42 missions in the South Pacific and he ended up dying uh, in 1963. Actually, he died pretty young. I think he died at the age of 39 or something, but he has kind of a crazy story. And I would love to explore this more in another episode, but just wanted to mention that as well.
2: No, that would be interesting to hear um, and and find more about some of these early, learn more about some of these early South Asian actors in Hollywood.
1: And I was just going to say that, like, I hate that they had to play these, like, stereotyped exotic roles, but I'm almost glad that they got to play them, right? Like, it's not like Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's where he plays, like, an East Asian person, right? Like, that was also happening. There was a lot of brown face happening. At that time, at least a few few Indian people got cast. Yeah, I was reading even
0: Peter Sellers apparently played an Indian in some movie.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's that great episode um, of Master of None, right, with that Aziz Anshari show where he explores like all these like, you know, Middle Eastern, South Asian people were often played by white guys in brownface, so... Something to think about.
2: Yeah, that episode is actually really funny because they realize like all the I think it has the Peter Sellers clip as well. And and they're like, they have this moment and they're like, wait, all these all the representation I thought I had is like actually brown (laughs) face. And then like the punchline of the scene is like, is Mindy Kaling real?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can we also talk about the reverse, like white people playing roles in Bollywood?
1: Go ahead. Yeah. Tom Alter comes to mind. Well, yes,
0: but Tom Alter is also, like, he grew up, like, he was born and raised in India. So, I mean, he's white, yes, but, like, he...
1: Oh, he's Indian, but yeah. he's white. And he's also, like,
0: very well-versed. He's, like, a very, was very well-versed in Urdu and Hindi, so...
1: right. But we reduced him to being the villain in most films. <laughs> like, you know, like you exoticize, you get exoticized here and then white people. I don't know. I feel like white people were always the bad guys in 70s movies. Yeah, Bob Cristo from, uh, from Mr. India. Uh,
0: the guy who wants to steal the Hanuman statue.
1: Oh, the bald guy.
0: Who I think recently passed away.
1: R.I.P. Bob Cristo.
0: Of course, we have Captain Russell, a.k.a. Paul Blackthorn.
2: Dugnalagon. Teen Guna, Teen yaar. Guna, <laughs> It goes. It goes up slowly. It goes up. <laughs> the negotiation goes up. You know, Paul Blackthorne. Like I think I believe he like had to take some like Hindi tutoring to even get to that level <laughs> 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 to be able to say that in Lagan.
0: <laughs> I mean, while we are on Lagan, of course we should. We have to mention Rachel Shelley.
2: I just want to say though that you know it's a little different. Like with these you know, roles of, like, white actors playing more, like, villainous roles in Bollywood films <clears throat> at this time, because, I mean, they have, this is, like, a post-colonial period, and, um you know, the, the context is a little different if you've, like, just come out of British colonial rule.
1: The context is completely different and right, right? Like, in the 50s, 60s, even today, when you tell those stories, the Brits are the villains of those stories they were you know they were the ruling minority or whatever so yeah but it's just interesting to to see and also like what else they can't play native Indian so like who are they gonna play I did want to say something interesting about Kuldeep, though. That when he was, um, because of that kind of offhand remark that Groucho Marx made about his name being Cool Dip, he, that became his recording name in the United States. Like he had to kind of to go back to a previous conversation about changing your name and making yourself more palatable. He had to make this kind of like rock and roll name for himself, and he was called Cool Dip.
2: That's really remarkable, you know, that he like took that kind of jab. On, on the cool dip and then on his chin and then just like turned it around and like
1: recorded on that name and good sense of like marketing and stuff right like he he made it work for himself i don't know i'm like very impressed by this person uh it's unfortunate we didn't see like where his potential could have really taken him because of all this immigration stuff it just kind of put a roadblock in what could have been a super uh, skyrocketing career. He's also very handsome. (laughs) I actually
0: watched another episode of You Bet Your Life. And apparently his sister also, or at least somebody who said she was his sister, came on the episode, I think like five or six episodes after he was on the show. Because I'm kind of unsure. Because she has like a very, like, she has an accent that a native Spanish speaking person would have. And it's kind of very different from Kuldeep's accent. So I'm kind of not, I'm not sure what's, uh, what, what the sourcing is for that. And I could not find it. But she does, her name is, she says her name is Kishori Singh. She says, I'm Kuldeep's sister. And like she, I think she also goes on the quiz show.
1: Yeah, so there's no like information about her. She clearly didn't like have the same like the world didn't have their same reaction to her that they had to cool deep. It would be interesting if she was just like, it's the 50s, no one can trace this stuff. Like this guy's skyrocketing. I'll just pretend to be his sister. Like that would also be kind of a cool cool scam
0: one final thing i wanted to give a shout out to south asian american digital archive who have a really amazing collection of old photographs and they've categorized it into different themes one of the themes is called the first days project in which they've kind of collected photos from the first days uh people from south asia moved into america and they've kind of made it an archive there's there's actually an like a quite a fascinating collection of photos and it's kind of it's it's a very nice trip And it's a very eye-opening trip down memory lane.
2: Yeah, it's a fantastic project. So follow SADA.org. So what do you got for us, Saurabh?
0: So did you know that one of uh, South Africa's most popular street food dishes has an Indian origin? Tell us more. Usually, when you ask, did you know, the answer is yes or no.
2: I kind of know. know I kind of know.
0: So, I am talking about the bunny chow, which is basically a big loaf of white bread. Think of like unsliced. So, think of like like a big, I think at least four or three or four, two or three inches tall, uh, hollowed out and filled with curry. They give you the hollowed out portion that you have to use that as kind of a spoon to eat the. Eat the spicy curry, and the reason this is called bunny chow is that um, there's several uh, origin stories of this, um, and obviously the the curry is attributed to the Indians uh, Indian community in South Africa. Um, but the the origins of bunny chow are varied. Some say that it was made by laborers who want who were working in fields and they did not have time to take big lunch break, so they just made the bread into like a portable container and took it uh, i was reading this vice article by isha govinder ipma she's the author of a book called curry stories and recipes across south africa so she writes that it was the apartheid era in the like the early uh, mid nineteenth uh, mid twentieth century when Banija became became uh, like popular because r- restaurants and uh, lunch counters were not allowed to serve black customers. so the the Indian owners of these uh, lunch counters they they essentially used bread as a portable container and gave it to their black customers so that they could eat it with the, and kind of skirt the apartheid restrictions. and the bunny comes from Baniya, which is the cost of people who are operating these restra- restaurants and um, these establishments so the Indians uh, there have been several like waves waves of migration I guess uh, the first one was in the 18 uh, like the 1860s and 70s when a lot of people from South Asia went to South Africa as indentured labor to work in the sugarcane fields. In Natal, Uh, Natal was a province which comprises now the city of Durban. So and then after the second wave was like, I I believe, in the early uh, 20th century when merchants and traders moved because they saw an opportunity here. And obviously, Mahatma Gandhi also moved there.
2: And the apartheid origin story is something that's like discussed a lot. Right. And um, it's very, very interesting um, how... You know, within this scope of like segregation and and different groups, um, you know, people are trying to invent like how food is invented through that. Um, it's it's like a dark origin story, but like the reality and um, and continues on as like a very popular street food even today, right?
0: You're right, and I was. Um, so another article I was reading basically said that because of apartheid, the Indian community and the South Asian community was kind of cut off from the rest of the world. So they had to develop their own um, recipes and kind of adapt and evolve their recipes to to suit their taste, which kind of became its own thing. And uh, it's apparently very different from what you would get in India. Uh, it's like, I was just reading that South African Indian food is like extremely spicy, comprises a, like a lot of like pre-mixed like powders, uh, which is a mix as, as opposed to when we put turmeric and red chili powder and everything separately. The Durban curry, as it's called, uh, has like pre-mixed powder. Apparently also the only curry that is named after the city.
1: I also, so South Asia and South Africa, like the link between India and South Africa is so often through Mahatma Gandhi, right? Like that's you, like that's what I think of when you think of that link. But I was really surprised to find out that Durban is the largest Indian city or has the highest concentration of Indians outside of India. Like that's the biggest one, right?
0: Yeah, Dur- Durban is home to the biggest po- Indian diaspora population in a city.
1: And it's such a cool little... um Well, I mean, the reason that this happened isn't cool, of course, but like, it's such an interesting um, situation where they were kind of cut off. So it's a diaspora that's really kind of built their own culture has their own food. That's very different from like, what you see in the States, where I feel like a lot of the times it's us trying to like recreate home a little bit. They were too, but because they were so cut off, they it's what it sounds like it ended up in like very different recipes kind of a different style of cooking to suit their needs
2: I think it's really interesting how like it's been so many generations and they were you know so cut off but still in some ways of of course they're very distinct from the subcontinent as you mentioned Saurabh um but that they have managed to remain distinct within South Africa as a community, maybe because of the numbers. I don't know, you know, how that happened. But that is very interesting. Unlike, you know, what we discussed uh, in our last episode about the Punjabi Mexican community, you know, it was like small and tight knit and within like one generation, it started to change and assimilate um and so this is a group that has like it's been like over 150 years and and their ver-
1: their culture is distinct within the country i was reading online and i think and i saw a couple of places where they were like yeah they were t- speaking with a great deal of pride about like our indian food doesn't taste like the indian food in india and it's spicy and it's different in this way and that way and I, exactly that Vaid's like that's so cool that they've created this like very solid, very um, unique culture and it's kind of strayed true to their roots at the same time.
0: Did you know South Africa has its own version of biryani? It's They, they call it breyani.
1: No, tell us about that.
0: So I think it's similar to the biryani, except it also has dal in it, which a biryani does not. They have their own version of samosa. They call it samosa. And so I was just reading about how they substituted a lot of the ingredients they found at back home that they did not, they could not find here. or was not, were not easily accessible. So I was reading that obviously saffron is no longer available and coconut milk and dairy was again, not very easily accessible to these groups. So they added taro, they added gourds, they added maize flour, corn kernels. So, uh, and pumpkin. So they made use of a lot of the local ingredients that were much more accessible and created their own version of the cuisine.
2: That's really cool. It's really fascinating. Um, I'd love to try it.
0: So every every description that I've read, and I've I don't I've never tried it. Uh, I've heard that it's really spicy and much more than than an uh, like an Indian curry. And these are Indian people or people of Indian origin writing these articles. So,
1: <laughs> so it's spicy. <laughs> so yeah. it means it's really spicy. I have a logistic question. It's a bowl of curry and then a hollowed out piece of bread that you use as a spoon, or is the curry in the hollowed out piece of bread?
0: The curry is in the bread. Is the container? So the curry is in the bread. That was the whole point, because you couldn't have a container.
1: (laughs) I know, but earlier you said it was used as a spoon. So I was like, the When you hollow
0: out a bread, there is one piece that comes
1: out. Oh. Guys, I'm sorry, I'm slow today. (laughs)
0: Uh, I was just reading the origins of who has kind of invented it, and it's not really, uh, there's several restaurants that claim to have invented it. And one of the restaurants is called Patel's uh, Vegetarian Refreshment Room.
1: Great name. Wait, but bunny chow isn't usually vegetarian, is it? Or it can be.
0: I believe it started out as vegetarian, so it had like uh, beans curry. But obviously, uh, you can get it in chicken, mutton, and um, like other meats. They just call it a bunny, they don't even call it bunny chow. Like, it's just referred to as bunny. The most equivalent or that I could think of was it's kind of like the pav bhaji. Oh. Uh, now, now, can you picture a hollowed out bread?
1: Yes. I also looked it up. <laughs> I get it now. the
2: The reason why they used bread was because like the stuff was fall the food would fall out of roti, so like it was easier to like put it in bread. And I I believe that it's it's not just this dish that, but like the apartheid period led to like different kinds of like. You know, finding uh, food to go, making dishes that were like sandwich oriented that could like be eaten to go because blacks were not allowed to be served in many of these restaurants. And apartheid in South Africa was like eliminated fairly recently. Ninety four. So this is like in when we were kids. Yeah. Uh,
0: I mean, I can uh, if I can use a cricket angle here. Uh, South Africa does not, despite being a British or a former British colony and like a commonwealth n- nation, I believe. Uh, South Africa does not feature in the first 75, uh, four or five World Cups because there was a boycott. They, they were boycotted from world sports. So South Africa is not in the World, uh, world Cup cricket, I believe, until 1992.
1: Which is crazy. Crazy, right? And I mean, even if you just look at it from that angle, South Africa wasn't letting black players on their teams. There's a great movie about the South African rugby team called Invictus with Morgan Friedman about how when Nelson Mandela becomes I think it's president, um, the rugby team is interracial and it's this huge like it's so appalling that this is something that we all probably were somewhat aware of, or at least our parents were aware of, when we were young kids. Like, this was...
0: Yeah, I remember the South African cricket team from the 90s. I used to love that team because they were so good. It was all white people. Everybody I think in 1999, they got their first black player, Makaya Antini. Everybody else was white. It was like Lance Klusner, Hansi Cronje, like all these Dutch-sounding names or British-sounding names. Like, Makaya Antini, I believe, was their first black south african player
2: my parents told me that the first protest that they went to in the u.s in the late 80s uh, was an anti-apartheid protest so this is something that you know our parents generation was like participating in in, participating in trying to eradicate
0: that's amazing though Uh, and i read that like the indians in south africa were also a big part of uh, the anti-apartheid movement And uh, a lot of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement ended up becoming like ministers and like people in government.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot more to explore here. And we'll definitely delve into, you know, Indians in South Africa and their stories as well, because the diaspora is so interesting.
2: Yeah. After the pandemic, three Daisy Things field trip to South Africa.
1: (laughs) I really want to go.
2: I really want to go. There's so much. Um, Robbins Island, where Nelson Mandela was in prison, or
1: decades 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 that man spent in prison
2: fun
0: fact uh so Mahatma Gandhi's law office was just down the street from Patel's vegetarian refreshment room which claims to be one of the originators of the bunny chow
1: can you imagine if we found a picture of Mahatma Gandhi eating bunny chow was
2: this Mr. Gandhi's lunchtime lunchtime like snack break bunny chow
0: uh, I don't know I, I mean I actually read a piece where I think somebody asked him but there's I don't think there's any evidence of him coming to the restaurant but like
2: for a second I was also trying to confuse I was confused about the dates like was it invented at the same time
0: uh it's a, I mean they claim to have invented it there's also a couple of other restaurants that Claim to have the it, there's one place called Capitans which says that's the original recipe. Uh, but a lot of these places, Patels is still around, but a lot of the other places have closed.
2: Patels is still around.
0: Yeah, I think the last I read an article of it about it was in like 2019. So it's. But is still around.
2: Somebody asked Gandhi if he had eaten bunny chow.
1: No, somebody asked the owner of Patel if (laughs) he had eaten. Nobody was like, dear Mahatma, did you have bunny chow? So I've got five minutes to ask you about the
2: fall of the British Empire and the Indian National Movement. But I also want to just jam in here. Have you ever tried a bunny chow? That would be me. If I was the journalist at the time, I would do that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> whatever that's a viral moment and we would know right now <laughs> if you are a person who's eaten food in india and had food in south africa indian food in south africa tweet us and let us know what's different about it is one better do you prefer one i want i want this to be a raging debate let's go yeah i want to learn some of the preparatory processes maybe something for
2: Krishna oak to tell us about the science behind south african indian
1: cuisine all right anything else Nope, just adding this to the list of places we have to visit after the pandemic's over. All right, that was it.
0: 3 Desi Things is Saurabh Datar, Geetika Kallu, and Veda Shastri.
1: You can follow us on Instagram at 3 Things or on Twitter at 3 Things. You can find us on
2: our website at 3 things.com or email us at 3 Things at gmail.com. We are on all the podcast platforms so please subscribe and leave us a review if you're on an android
1: or an iphone you can find us
0: you can attack reviews on android okay
1: (laughs) just tell your friends subscribe listen thank you to everybody who's already reviewed we really appreciate it it helps people find us thank you for people who are following us and we will see you in two weeks